Will you pray with me? Now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, reality television has become an incredibly popular genre of entertainment since the early 1990s. Some of you remember the debut of The Real World on MTV. Reality TV is basically a genre of programming that features, quote unquote, uh, unscripted real life events. And they usually involve everyday people rather than professional actors or actresses. And it really took off in the early 2000s with several uh, shows like Big Brother, Survivor, American Idol, The Bachelor. Many of those became global franchises. And these kinds of shows often involve competitions and secret alliances and a whole bunch of deceit and backstabbing and lying, all with the hope to become the eventual victor of the show. Now, I have several friends that are huge fans of reality television. They record their favorite seasons and, and shows, and they get together for little watch parties so they can commentate on everything that happens in the show. And perhaps you are a fan of reality TV as well. Maybe you have seen all 432 seasons of Survivor. What is the host, Jeff, like? Is he like 82 now? 83, perhaps? It's been a long time. Reality TV is not really my thing. There is enough drama and backstabbing and all those things in the real world for me to watch it for entertainment's purposes. It kind of feels like we see it around us all the time. It is our reality without the television. I mean, we encounter people every day who lie or abuse or exclude people in order to gain something, privilege, riches, fame, whatever it is. And sometimes, to be honest, we are those people, too, who are not our best selves. Last weekend, I took my niece to St. Louis to see Les Miserables, my favorite musical. And after lunch, and also after the show, we ran into insane St. Louis traffic. I mean, people were, you know, riding your tail, and they were cutting you off, and just being very impatient. And so I had this little moment in the car with my niece in which I went on a tirade about how inconsiderate people are, and, you know, no one can be thinking about other people, and everybody's impatient, and they want what they want when they want it. And the next morning, on Sunday morning, I was driving to church, and I got behind what we call a Sunday driver. Yeah. She was going about 10 miles per hour under the speed limit, and I was trapped till we got to the highway. And as soon as I got that open lane, I took off. And I did the thing where when you're passing, you kind of look over, not to you know, really say anything, hoping not to really to make eye contact, but kind of being like, get with the program guy, like you're going too slow. And so I looked over to my right, and there was this petite, precious older woman with both hands on the wheel, driving herself probably to worship our Lord or to rock babies in the church nursery, which she's done for 53 years. Or, or maybe she was driving to the casino in Boonville. I don't really <laughs> know. I don't know. But what I do know is that in that moment, the Spirit convicted me of my little rant about selfishness less than 24 hours earlier. It is human nature for us to center ourselves. We fight selfishness every day of our life, even on our very best days. 
But when fear is added to the mix, selfishness and self-preservation intensifies. And my friends, there's no shortage of fear these days, is there? And no shortage of people who will play to our fears. In recent years, we've seen an epidemic of what is called cancel culture. Cancel culture is when people take away support from an individual or a brand or a company or an organization because they've done something or said something that is unacceptable to some people. And often these are public figures that are canceled, but sometimes private individuals get caught up and are victims of it as well. And there are some who see cancel culture and participating in it is the most effective way to enact change, especially when there seems to be no legal or lawful way to do so. And there are some who view cancel culture as simply a mob mentality that's out of control. But this type of public shaming is not something that's new to us. As author James Keene writes, from the Salem witch trials of the 1690s to the Japanese-American internment camps of the Second World War, to the McCarthy anti-communist crusades of the early 1950s, to the Hollywood blacklists of the same decade, we have a long and sordid history of deciding who is not getting with the program and aggressively trying to drive them out into the desert. Usually, we applaud, and sometimes we apologize later. I don't know about you, but relationships seem especially fragile to me these days, both in and outside the Christian community. Only a few moments on social media will make you feel that way. We worry about being canceled, perhaps not so much by the larger society, but maybe friends or family or our faith community, because we see things differently and we don't know how to talk about them. The motto of the day sometimes feels like you're either with us or you're against us, and there's no in-between. And we experience relationships every day where people lie and betray and exclude and abuse in order to gain their own way. And sometimes we are those people, too. Jesus understands the fragility of relationships. Jesus' conversation with his disciples in today's passage is situated between two significant relationship events. The first words that we read in verse 31 read this way, when he had gone out. These words are referring to Judas, one of the 12 disciples, who had just left the meal after Jesus said to him that he knew what he was to do and that he needed to go do that thing. And then right after our passage, we see Jesus confronting Peter and saying that Peter, one again, one of his closest friends and followers, will deny even knowing him three times. Between these two betrayals from some of his closest companions and what probably is one of his greatest hours of need, Jesus teaches us a new command about how to be in relationship with one another. It is, it is the passion of the Christ, the suffering, the arrest, the death of Jesus that has begun already. And Jesus is fully aware of what awaits him 
And he's also aware of what awaits the disciples. He knows that they're going to be scared, that they're going to be afraid, that things are not going to happen the way that they think they're going to happen. And so Jesus uses those final moments with them as they're gathered together in that upper room to prepare them and to encourage them, to instruct them and to remind them of the kind of community they are to be after Jesus has gone where they are not able to go. In those moments, he washed feet. He broke bread. He forgave betrayals. He spoke tenderly and compassionately to them, saying, little children. In all the chaos, my friends, and what will appear by human understanding to be defeat, and what will look like anything but glory and victory in the kingdom I've talked about, when it feels like all is lost and fear rises up within you, remember this, little children. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. No more parables or confusion. No more answering questions with more questions. Jesus is direct in this new command. Love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. If the disciples can love one another during the suffering and the unknown that is to come, Jesus says that they will have proven themselves faithful to him. If the disciples can love each other in the shadow of the cross, they will have proven that they understood what Jesus taught them. If they can be patient with one another in the confusing and frightening times in the world in which they live, in which they are there where Jesus is where they cannot be, they will bear witness to the difference that Jesus has made in their lives. And there were a lot of things that Jesus could have said in these moments about what is most important. And based on some Christians today and some churches, I imagine we might have expected him to shame Judas and Peter. We might expect him to give a speech calling out their betrayals, warning of the consequences of their choices, making them an example for everyone. We might expect a list of rules to follow and beliefs to protect when Jesus left them in charge. Instead, chapter 13 begins with these words. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. In verse 15, Jesus tells them, I have set the example, and you should do for each other exactly what I have done for you. Love as I have loved. Love that embodies washing the feet of those who may walk away from you. Love as I have love. Love that may lead you to say, lay down your life for another. Love as I have loved, from the mundane to death and everything in between. 
You see, having Jesus as our example negates all limits that we want to place on love. Love asks for everything. Horace Bushnell said that there is a Gethsemane hid in all love, meaning there is a call to suffer and surrender in all love, to take up our cross, to lay down our lives in love, just as Jesus commanded us. You see, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the mission that he has given them and us with his most important command and charge. Remember you are loved. Now love as I have loved. And they did. Not perfectly, but they did. In the early church, the believers' love for one another and for others was so authentic and so clear that even those outside the church looked and took notice of them and were amazed by the loving kindness of the first and second century Christians. Christianity was spreading in those early years by the appeal of the community to the outsiders. Tertullian, a pastor in those early years in the third century in northern Africa, remarked that non-Christians would look at Christians and say, look how they love one another how they're willing to die for each other. It wasn't Christian worship, programming, or those things that attracted. It was the Christians themselves that attracted them. In 1966, Peter Schultz published the hymn, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love, also known as We Are One in the Spirit, also the song that we just sang today. It's said that Schultz took inspiration for the chorus's lyric from verses 34 and 35 from John chapter 13, as well as an expression that tradition holds was frequently used by those outside the church body in speaking about Christians in the early church. And that expression, which is often repeated for centuries, is behold how they love one another. That type of love is so rarely seen. It would seem strange. Yet their love was so clearly demonstrated in actions, the sincerity of their heart was undeniable. Further, as outsiders considered this sacrificial love that was so unique to the Christians, they had to consider the source of that love. That source is Jesus Christ. Jesus changed relationships with others, and it was undeniable to the world around them. A world used to people lying and betraying and abusing and excluding in order to get their way. Love united diverse Christ followers in a culture that was divided by class and ethnicity and gender. The churches that Paul planted turned upside down all those divisions in order to stay true to the way of Jesus. All that had previously served and was upheld to divide people was now gone because of Jesus. Neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ. The visible unity of the church gave witness to the world that there was a new king and a new kingdom, and that those who professed Christ pledged their sole allegiance to that kingdom and that kingdom alone. I wonder if the same could be said today of the church in America. Do people look from the outside and say, 
Behold how they love one another. Do people see us holding our diversity and our differences in love and humility and mutual submission? Or do they simply see division and hateful words? Do they see us washing feet and sharing the table with people we have nothing in common with other than our love and devotion to Jesus Christ? Do they see our allegiance to God's kingdom above all other kingdoms? Or are they confused by our words and actions about where our allegiance really lies? Jesus' new commandment may be simple in words, but it is far from simple to live. As one modern New Testament scholar observed, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, and it is profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. How repeatedly embarrassed about how poorly we comprehend it and we put it into practice. To love as Jesus loves in a world that cancels is hard. To love as Jesus loves in a world that champions self over the other is challenging. To love as Jesus loves in a world that's divided by fear is unacceptable to some. To love as Jesus loves in a world that rewards winning at all costs is almost unheard of. To love as Jesus loves is impossible without Jesus. This level of sacrificial love can only be sourced from our understanding and acceptance of Jesus' sacrificial love for us and the work of God's Spirit in us and through us. From the mundane of washing feet to the laying down of our agendas, our preferences, our fears, our varied lives, we love not to please God, although it does please God. We love not to be loved. God already loves us. We love because he first loved us. We love because to live in Jesus is to love, and to love is to live in Jesus. It is the love of God that first changes our hearts to make us capable of this kind of love. And it's Christ's example of love that teaches us how to love others. And in doing so, staying rooted in Christ's love for us, and allowing it to permeate every word and action of our lives, we have the great privilege of making Christ known. We show we are his disciples. Loving as Jesus loves may never win you, big brother or survivor. It's okay, Jesus wasn't a world uh, winner by the world standards. Loving as Jesus loves doesn't always protect, protect us from betrayal or relationship disappointments. Jesus experienced broken relationships as well. Loving as Jesus loves may cost us. It most certainly did Jesus. In our moments of fear and confusion, when we, like the disciples, don't understand what God is doing or how he's working, when we want to pick up swords and fight when we feel threatened, Jesus speaks tenderly to us today, too. 
saying, little children, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray together. Loving God, our love for others and for you is so imperfect and falls short. We ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for not loving one another as we should. We ask that you take away the judgmental attitudes, the pride, the fear, the assumptions that we make about the heart and motives of others while thinking only the best of our own. God, give us eyes to see the barriers we defend and give us the conviction to dismantle them in love. Remind us of our own need for your grace and mercy so that in our gratitude for these gifts from you, we might generously extend them and share them with others. Compassionate God, fill us, your little children, with your love so that we might make you known. Help us to love others as you have loved us through the power of your spirit. And God, may those watching us say, behold, look how they love one another. For the glory of you and the good of our world. Amen.